Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So a few years ago, I had writer Stephen Kotler on the show to talk about his book, The Rise of Superman, which is all about the science of flow, that state of being fully immersed in the energy and enjoyment of an activity. Since then, Stephen has worked with high-level performance athletes, tech CEOs, and even Navy SEALs as part of his Flow Genome Project, an organization dedicated to helping individuals tap into flow states using the latest psychological research and technology. And after rubbing shoulders with these various elite performers, Stephen learned that there's an underground movement of individuals who aren't just looking to flow to improve performance, but also to seek a state that Stephen calls ecstasis. His latest book shares the research behind this performance-enhancing mental state and the extreme measures some folks are going to to get into it. It's called Stealing Fire, How Silicon Valley, the Navy SEALs, and Maverick Scientists revolutionizing the way we live and work. Today on the show, Stephen shares what ecstasis is and why it improves performance in sports, business, and even in military combat. He then goes on to describe the four accelerating forces in science that are allowing individuals to hack into ecstasis state more easily. And these include things like mind-altering drugs and zapping your brain with electricity. Pretty crazy stuff. We end the show discussing how average Joes can get into ecstasis, as well as the ethical implications of this new ecstasis-inducing technologies. Uh, I mean, are we bringing in a brave new world here, literally? If you want a glimpse of what's coming in the world of performance enhancement in the next 20 years, you're not going to want to miss this show. After the show's over, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash stealingfire. Stephen Kotler, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. So we had you on the show a few years ago to talk about your book, uh, Becoming Superman. And it was all about capturing the flow state. Um, you know, that moment when you're doing something and things just seem to, everything just seems to click. Time seems to stand still. And um, you've been doing a lot of things with the, the flow project, trying to help people um, get into that flow state. But you've got a new book out where you you delve deeper um, I think it's related. Maybe, maybe it's not. I think it, it is related. I mean, how does this new book, Stealing Fire, um, sort of continue the work you started in becoming Superman about getting into this flow state? It's a great place to start. So let me quick overview. Um, 
of Stealing Fire, just so people can orient for a second. Stealing Fire is a book about a $4 trillion underground revolution and people hacking states of consciousness to massively increase performance. I started down this road, as you mentioned, in a book called The Rise of Superman, which examined uh, flow states, which are one particular altered state that have, you know, about a 150-year track record of kind of massively in, in improving performance and about 150 years worth of science to kind of back that up. And I wrote Rise of Superman and, and where Stealing the Fire really came from and how these things link up is, you know, uh, my co-author in Stealing the Fire is Jamie Wheel. And together we, uh, we co-founded and run the Flow Genome Project. We train organizations in the use of um, flow states for performance. And, you know, we... Before Stealing Fire came out, it was top athletes and the military primarily, people with a, like a competitive interest in high performance, shall we say. And after Stealing or after Rise of Superman came out, the work went kind of wild and everywhere. And suddenly we were on Wall Street all the time and we were on Main Street and we were talking to bankers and stockbrokers and biohackers and everybody you could possibly imagine, and Fortune 100 companies. And it didn't really matter where we went. Afterwards, we'd give our talk, we'd present on flow, and afterwards, people would come up to us and go, yeah, this flow stuff is really cool, really interesting. I think I'm doing some of it, and I want to start doing more of it, but what do you think about blank? And we met Wall Street guys who were zapping their brains with electrodes to alter their consciousness before they were going onto the trading floor because it helped them make better decisions, faster decisions. We met Navy SEALs who were going on two-week silent meditation retreats. We'd be at Fortune 100 companies in Silicon Valley, and we'd meet whole teams of engineers that were microdosing on psychedelics, or whole teams of engineers that were going skydiving on the weekend, or and on and on and on. Everywhere we went, people were using all these different technologies to sort of change their state for performance improvement. It was lots of different people, lots of things going on, and they were harnessing more than flow. It was it was a larger story than what I was talking about in Rise of Superman, focused on one particular altered state of consciousness. But the total link, and then I'll shut up for a second, but the real link was in decoding the science of flow, we ended up with sort of a Rosetta Stone for a lot of different altered states of consciousness, and we basically reproved something that was proved 100 years ago at the birth of psychology when a guy like William James, a Harvard psychologist, said, hey, there's a whole collection of altered states, the so-called ecstatic states, um, awe, flow states, psychedelic states, meditative states, contemplative states, the states that yogis seem to get into, and you know, sexually fueled altered states. They all seem to share very similar properties and they all seem to have the same impact on psychology and the same impact on performance. hundred years later, we've got enough tools in neurobiology at this point to be able to look in the brain and go, oh my God, he is right. So all these things that we're seeing people hack, while they are bigger than flow, they fit into this larger category of kind of ecstatic techniques things that produce all the experiences that you might find north of happy. All right. So this is what you call in the book ecstasis. This is like what they're trying, sort of a, a general term to describe these altered states. Yeah, we couldn't. I mean, you know, all the freaking terms are loaded with cultural baggage. So, you know, what, when we're working with the Navy SEALs, one of the guys uh, in SEAL Team 6 used that term. And we it caught our attention. When you look it up, it means – 
literally to stand outside oneself and to be filled with insight and inspiration. And the standing outside oneself was accurate because in all the states, one of the things they all have in common, doesn't matter what technique you use, you could be using psychedelics, you could be using meditation, you could be using access support to trigger flow. They all make that, as you pointed out, your sense of self disappears, right? So you stand outside yourself, you change the channel on normal waking consciousness. And as it turns out in all these states, all of the brain's information processing machinery gets fired up. That's where a lot of the heightened performance comes from. That's why these are states of insight and information and heightened creative problem solving and so forth. So yeah, you talked about, so some of the traits of ecstasis are, you mentioned one, the standing outside of yourself. Uh, what is it about the self, I guess the ego, that prevents us from reaching our top performance? It's a re it's a great question, first of all, and, 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 and a very tricky one, because for certain, we are not advocating, hey, get rid of your ego um, permanently in some kind of yogic Eastern philosophy kind of way. That doesn't seem to be useful. You know, the, 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 if you look at kind of all the progress we've made in the past 300 years, it starts with the French Enlightenment. It starts when somebody goes, hey, the ego, the conscious mind, that lo logical, rational version of yourself, that's the version we should trust. We end up with the scientific method, the technological revolution, and thus the 21st century, right? So we need those egos. We just don't need them running the whole show. And it turns out Switching the channel of consciousness, dropping out of where we normally live, that ego-driven version of ourselves, and turning off the self helps solve certain very critical challenges. Most importantly, our creativity. And if you think about this, this is not hard to imagine. The self, part of, part of the being a human self comes with your inner critic, that always-on nagging defeatist voice in your head. In all of these states, that inner critic goes silent. So what happens when that happens, first of all, risk-taking goes up, um, which is really, you know, often a good thing. Um, simultaneously, creativity goes up because we're no longer second-guessing all of our neat ideas. So it's like the floodgates open and the brain clicks into brainstorming mode. Very, very useful for solving certain kinds of problems. Gotcha. So uh, besides the stepping out of yourself, uh, other traits of ecstasis are, uh, I guess, a, a timelessness or time seems to slow down a bit. Yep. That's that. So it helps to understand what's going on in the brain um, to talk about these characteristics. The first thing that's happening is activity in the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that houses most of your higher cognitive functions starts to decrease. It's an efficiency exchange. The brain is trading extra energy that to help you focus in the present moment um, for non-critical functions. Non-critical functions start shutting down. So the prefrontal cortex comes offline. The self, our sense of self of that, of being an eye is created by structures all over the prefrontal cortex. So as those structures wink out, we can no longer create that sense of self. Same thing happens to our sense of time. Time is a calculation performed by all these different structures in the prefrontal cortex. And David Eagleman at Stanford figured out that as they start to go out, as this efficiency exchange happens, we lose our ability to process time, right? So we step into a timeless moment, what researchers call um, the deep now. It basically means past, present, and future get conflated. And you can only think about what's going on right in front of you at that moment. This is also a big deal for performance. You think about most anxiety, most fear 
is not present moment fear. It's things that could have happened in the past that you were trying to avoid happening again in the present, things that could happen in the future that we're scared of. So as a result, performance again goes up because anxiety goes down. Simultaneously, the present is the only place in the data stream where you get the most accurate information, right? Memories are, are very, very flawed as we learn time and time again. And future predictions, right? Nobody saw the 2007 crash coming. Um, we're not very good at either. So we're very good at processing data in the present moment. It's what we evolved to do. So you get this simultaneous boost in kind of data processing in the brain and anxiety decreasing. So performance goes up and then you get to the next step in the chain, which is a sense of effortlessness. And this has a different route. The effortlessness comes that shows up in all these states comes from the fact that you're flooded with performance enhancing feel good neurochemicals. Stress hormones like cortisol and norepinephrine get flushed from our system as we drop into these states. The self turns off, we drop into timelessness and suddenly we get this huge boost in motivation. It feels like we're being propelled by a force that's bigger than ourselves. In other words, we're really passionate about what we're doing. We're driven by purpose and meaning and motivation goes through the roof. These states are intrinsically motivating. Good. All right. So besides uh, effortlessness, another aspect or another trait of this ecstasis is richness. What is that? Yeah, it's the last trait of, uh, that, that we subscribe to uh, all these kind of north of happy altered states. And richness is short for information richness. So I, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, in all these states, the brain, information processing in the brain is massively heightened. And again, this has to do with neurochemistry. But what we see is in these states, the brain takes in more information per second. Uh, salience goes up, so we end up paying more attention to that information. Pattern recognition increases, so we find more links between that incoming information and older ideas. And lateral thinking increases, so we find more links between kind of those older ideas combined with the incoming information and big kind of lateral leaps, aha insights. So uh, the richness essentially saw, surrounds sort of the creative decision-making process as well, which is sort of why one of the reasons you see creativity spike so much in these states. Gotcha. So um, before we get into how individuals are hacking in to this ecstasis state, what were people doing before then? Because, like, uh, you know, in the book, you said that people were able to get into this status on their own, even anciently. So what were they doing, um, you know, 100 years ago, thousands of years ago? So uh, Marcia Elati, the historian, coined a great term, which is uh, techniques of ecstasy. And techniques of ecstasy were everything from chanting, singing prayer, meditation, dancing, uh, you know, endurance activities like vision quests, um, all the way through uh, through psychedelics. Um, so, you know, the ways of altering our consciousness haven't all that much changed. There's a lot of new technology. There's not a lot of new pharmacology. That's different. But our brains are the same, right? They evolved the same way. So a lot of the traditional techniques, you know, still work great. And today we can gussy them up with a bunch of other technology to make them work even better. All right. So uh, let's talk about some of the insights we've gotten that allow us to uh, tap into that um, easier. So for example, what do we, what do we learn from psychology in the past few decades that have made getting into ecstasis easier and more reliable? Great question. So, um, 
what you're dipping into is psychology is is the first of what we call, uh, for lack of a better term, I guess, the four forces of ecstasy. And these are forces that are accelerating very, very quickly right now. Um, psychology, neurobiology, technology, and pharmacology, and really giving us a, kind of a lot more room and maneuver. And the story starts with psychology. And what, what we examined is sort of the change in our versions of who we are in the world, right? Go back to the 1950s. We were fairly limited, right? I mean, even those of these are stereotypes, they're not that far off. You sort of had Betty Homemaker on one side and the strong, silent, masculine type on the other. And those were your acceptable versions of yourself, which is fairly restricted. Today, with our, you know, 78 different pronouns for gender sexualities at this point and things along those lines, we live in a much more expansive world, our individual versions of who we are, how we can live in this world and what we can experiment with has widened greatly. Simultaneously, psychology has through the, you know, through the internet become something of a big data science. So when you're approaching slippery subjects like non-ordinary states of consciousness and their impact on our um, psychology, you might not be able to get the rigorous data you'd be comfortable with, but you can ask 100,000 people the same question so you can get a huge sample size. And that allows us to sort of work around some of the squishiness in psychology and is really, um, really helping us move faster. Right. So I mean, what's some of that squishiness that we've been able to suss out thanks to technology? So uh, for my own work with Flow, in the 70s, University of Chicago, uh, Chairman of the Psychology Department, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who's often called the Godfather of Flow, created discovered Flow is measurable. It's got ten core characteristics, and you can you can measure it using a psychological scale. The scale has been used with tens of thousands of people. It's extremely well validated, but it's still squishy. You're still essentially stopping somebody mid task to say, "Okay, answer these questions to figure out if you're in flow." So first of all, if you were in flow ahead of time, you're not by the time you're done answering the questions, right? Um, so we have been hard at work with a whole bunch of other you know, teams around the world to try to create a biophysical-based flow detector. So we can look at certain data markers, heart rate variability, EEG, things along those lines, and be able to know yes or no is somebody in flow. So that's, that's how things are shifting that way. Right. And I imagine um, smartphones are helping with that as well because they have all these nifty things like features where you can measure that stuff easily. Um, and they, they even have things where like they can tell about your mood based on how you're moving and things like that. So you're able to get a lot more data. Yeah, it's getting so we were in a conversation. Um, I don't even know if I should be talking about this, but OK, we were in the conversation with the team in Russia. There, uh, There's a guy named Paul Ekman who discovered that your face you make micro expressions on your face, right? You have no control over these. This is sort of like when you smile, the upper corners of your eyes go up. You can't do it automatically, which is why it's hard to smile on command, but it happens naturally. These things are hardwired directly into our emotions. In the TV show, Lie to Me, which they sort of made about this work, they sort of prophesied an AI capable of reading these things and determining your mood through your facial expressions. We were talking to a guy who has developed this software and they're thinking of deploying it on planes, for example, so that literally the stewardess can like look at a readout and go, yeah, guy in 2A is not in a good mood. 
So it, it's getting really wild out there. So what you know, what's what's what we can do on cell phones, what we can do in the lab is even uh, you know crazier. But you're totally right. Right, and we'll get into some of the ethics of that um, with that technology and being able to hack into Ecstasis more easily. We'll talk about that in a bit. But an interesting chapter, which I think is very timely because you're hearing hearing a lot about it in the media, is uh, drugs, pharmacology. Um, so what are we learning about uh, from pharmacology about getting into Ecstasis? So let me let me walk you through the whole progression because it's probably useful. The the changes in psychology have given us way more permission to explore. Changes in neurobiology have given us the way to kind of map and measure what's happening in our body and our brain when we're experiencing the inexplicable. Pharmacology is letting us tune those experiences with increasing precision and giving us access to them nearly on demand. And technology is bringing that access to scale. So states that used to be experienceable by five or 10 people around a campfire perhaps can now be 500,000 people in a stadium. So the first thing pharmacology is really doing is it's giving us a lot more precision uh, with these states. I mean, like right now, I mean, I just heard on NPR a story about uh, psychedelics, right? LSD, that was this thing that was once part of the 60s and sort of we banned it, you know, uh, but it's starting to come, you're seeing people use psychedelics or LSD to treat things like depression or just to become more creative. And these are, we're talking like micro doses. They're not like. Yeah, for sure. I mean, by the way, cover of last month's issue of GQ, why your boss wants you to do LSD at work. So, if it, right, going very, and, and by the way, the, you know, the, the data on psychedelics is pretty clear. Um before the microdosing revolution started happening, uh, it shows that roughly one out of 10 Americans has an annual psychedelic practice, does psychedelics at least on a yearly basis. So there's a huge swatch of the country that had been experimenting with, with, with psychedelics um, kind of prior to this, microdosing, which are sub-perceptual doses, right? They don't, you don't trip. Um, have been shown since the 60s in great experiments to amplify creativity, problem solving, all, all kinds of stuff. So that's why, you know, when we were doing the research for Stealing Fire, for example, what caught our attention was whole teams of engineers at Fortune 100 companies who were secretly microdosing at work on a regular basis. And this was not a one-off at one company. This was at a number of different companies that we bumped into this. And it's not just uh, LSD. I mean, it's things like ayahuasca is kind of, I've it's heard it's kind of hip in the entrepreneur world. People go on these ayahuasca journeys to South America or um, peyote is another one. I mean, so it's, it's kind of the bigger, I think the bigger and more important point, um, and this is my favorite bit of research in the book, I think, um, bit of data in the book, is that today we have options. And here's what I mean. We're a lot of these substances we're now talking about as treatments for anxiety and depression, but some of the early work that really led in this direction uh, began uh, about 10 years ago where people were looking at alternative cures for PTSD, which is a devastating condition, right? 25 million Americans at any one time suffer PTSD. It is completely debilitating. Um, and the only things on the market were SSRIs which don't really work for everyone. They don't really seem to work for women at all. They definitely don't work in the severe cases and stop the, stop the drugs and you're back where you started, right? So not an, a, a very effective treatment. So 10, 12 years ago, 
guy named Michael Mitherhofer, a psychologist in South Carolina, uh, teams up with the Multidisciplinary Re Association for Psychedelic Research, which is run by my friend Rick Doblin. And they decided to test MDMA, which is technically an apathedelic. It makes you feel more empathy. Um, it's, it's known on the street as ecstasy or molly, take your pick, um, as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. And they looked at victims of so child abuse, sexual abuse, and war trauma. So they tested vets from Iraq and Afghanistan. And what they discovered is one to three sessions of psychedelic therapy. That means they administer the drug and they do talk therapy with you for, for the period was enough to put symptoms of PTSD into near total remission. And so people got off their meds and it's been four or five years since that study has run, been run um, and they've stayed off their meds, which is why the FDA is now looking at MDMA as a treatment for just normal anxiety and depression. Now that's cool, but here's the neater point. So about four years after they ran that study, they reran that study. This time, instead of using a psychedelic, they substituted surfing, which is packed with flow triggers. So at Camp Pendleton in California, they put over a thousand soldiers through a surfing as a trigger for flow plus talk therapy protocol. Same basic study as the MDMA study. They just switched the trigger mechanism. And what they found is that five weeks of surfing and talk therapy was enough to completely cure, basically put into remission PTSD in soldiers. Last year, they reran that same study, replacing surfing with meditation. They got the same results in four weeks. So this is what I mean by options. If you have a tolerance for risk, if you want to get yourself enrolled in a government study or do an illegal substance, and or you have a very quick time period that you need to get right in, maybe that's the way to go. If you've got a little more time and you like outdoor activities, Flow and surfing is the way to go. If if it's, you know, if you're somebody who can learn to meditate and that works for you, right? We have options. We now know pretty clearly that these states are phenomenal at healing trauma, lower anxiety, all that stuff. And we can pick our poison, pardon the pun. That's the most important thing. In the in the end of the book, we do put this into a formula that allows everybody to sort of because it's really hard to do comparison and contrast between these techniques. How do I know what I want to do when and where? So we came up with a formula. And I will tell you, you know, the formula is more about stack ranking multiple activities because what the research consistently shows is the best way to maximize impact. And this is whether or not you're seeking, you know, heightened performance, collaboration, creativity, productivity, or if you're seeking treatment for trauma and those sorts of things, that blending techniques together. Meditation works great. Meditation with a period, periodic psychedelic practice seems to work better. This is recent research they were doing, I think, at Oxford and so forth. So we're starting to see, you know, not only do we have options, but the next level of research is what's the best mix and match toolkit? And it's totally different for every individual. There's no, you know, that's why we gave you an equation that lets you do this for yourself. Besides the pharmacology, other another tool, another option is this technology that's hardware that's being developed that actually you can use to trigger uh, states of ecstasis. And this is the uh, the transcranial um, electro, like it's something you, you shock. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, I don't remember if we 
delve too deep into this earlier, but uh, one of the things that happens when we move into these states uh, is there's deactivation of the prefrontal cortex, right? It gets, it gets quiet in there, which is why our sense of self goes away and time passes strangely and so forth. So what we've discovered is you can take a, you can use transcranial magnetic stimulation, send a weak mag electromagnetic pulse through the prefrontal cortex, knock it out, and induce an artificial flow state. And just to give you a sense of how well this works for stuff, they did an experiment at the University of Sydney not too long ago, like last year, two years ago, where they took 46 people and they gave them the nine dot problem to solve, which is that classic test of creative problem solving, connect nine dots and four lines without lifting your pencil from paper in 10 minutes. And normal conditions, less than 5% of the population can pull it off. And in their, in their group, nobody did. Then they took a different group, same size, and they used transcranial magnetic stimulation to knock out the prefrontal cortex, put people in a 20 to 40 minute temporary flow state, and 42% of the people solved the problem in record time. So really, really potent. And by the way, one example, if you want, you know, one of the crazier bits of research in the book, um, and it's tucked into the neurobiology section, but it's really kind of neurobiology and technology coming together. Um, back in 2000, 1999-1998, Andy Newberg at the University of Pennsylvania, neuroscientist, decoded the first kind of spiritual experience. He figured out uh, the most common mystical experience in the world that shows up everywhere is what's known as unity or cosmic unity. It's the feeling of becoming one with everything. He figured out why the brain produces this feeling. And I got to know him at the time. And I remember having a conversation about this uh, and saying, do you think we're going to get very far with many other spiritual experiences soon? And, you know, mystical states. I was curious. And he said, no, I, you know, maybe a couple more in our lifetime. It's 20 years later and pretty much every mystical state, trance state, speaking in tongues, prayer, chanting, meditation, yoga, on and on and on and on, out of body experiences, near death experiences um, has been decoded. Even crazier, we're starting to figure out not only what's causing this stuff in the brain, but we're starting with using VR simulations, for example, uh, to be able to reproduce these experiences in people. So there's now a way to have an out-of-body experience in VR. There's now a way to have a doppelganger experience in VR. These are the, some of the rarest kind of experiences in the history of the world, and they're now available at the flick of a switch, which is really a very interesting development that is certainly going to push hard on a lot of religions going forward. Right. And another technology you, you discuss in the book, and one I've actually tried before, uh, is uh, transcranial direct current stimulation, right? It's like where you put like these electrodes in certain parts of your brain and it somehow excites the neurons where you think faster or whatever. I know like athletes are starting to use this a little bit. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're seeing it across the boards. It's the, the, the open question with all these technologies, what was your experience, first of all? I didn't really experience anything. Like it tingled and that was it. And yeah. I didn't... That was, that was sort of where I was going because what we're seeing, some of the people who are best at this in the world are in the book, Advanced Brain Monitoring, Mikey Siegel from the Conscious and Hacking Movement. These guys are really talented at this stuff. And what the research seems to be showing more and more is at least now, at least where the tech is right now, you really need a skilled practitioner who, because the stuff seems to be very individually customized and so you can you can you, you can have some effects, you know, at a, at a blanket level, 
Um, though, you know, using EEG neural feedback is probably better uh, if you're if you want one way in. And I will also mention that I was talking to Tim Ferriss about this at one point, And he said, you know, if you get this wrong in a DIY hacker kind of way, you can make yourself pretty stupid for a long time. Right. Right. Don't scramble your brain. Um, and I thought this was an interesting chapter. Uh, you devoted, I wasn't expecting it. It was a whole chapter dedicated to Burning Man. And what's interesting is um, this is kind of uh, timely for me because I have my brother-in-law. He works for a, a company that makes uh, tactical electronic stuff for law enforcement and militaries. They make basically like surveillance cameras, drone stuff. Things. And they're testing it at Burning Man. And well, no, like, well, his boss went to Burning Man and like was transformed by it, and now he's like having the whole company go to Burning Man. Um, so that's awesome. Well, brother, and, and by the way, that's one of the reasons it's in the book, right? I mean, the reason, and we, it sort of is a chapter and isn't a chapter on Burning Man. It certainly opens there, right? And the point is. We've got all these lab experiments. We know all this stuff works in the lab. We really do. Um, so the question was, where is a place where the four forces are showing up really at full force uh, and what's happening there as a test bed for how this stuff works in the wild? And Burning Man, whatever else you want to say about the event, it is the single largest concentration of state-changing ecstatic technology on the planet. Everything is on display there and all at once. And, you know, we opened the book with a story about Google, who used so many years ago Burning Man as a way to screen Eric Schmidt. Eric Schmidt got the job as CEO Burning Man because, as CEO at Google because of Burning Man. And we opened that way and we say, why are they doing this? What could this mean? And where we go with it is, okay, these forces are showing up and what are they producing? And, and, and the point is, as you just pointed out, first of all, it's, you know, even though the press coverage is, is either kind of naked hippies doing drugs in the desert or, you know, Lady Gaga in a wild costume in the desert, um, what's really going on in the hood when you go to the event is you find tremendous amounts of people of money, power and influence who are going to the event. They're taking the inspiration they're gathering there. And I should pause to mention that. Burning Man is called a transformational festival. It's actually a literal term and research done at Oxford. They found that the same kind of neurobiological changes that you can get in meditation and chanting in flow and all that stuff um, shows up at Burning Man. So it is literally transformational. It puts you into an altered state of consciousness and and it lingers. Research out of Oxford shows that 75% of people who attend have a transformative experience and 80% of those people that experience lingers in their consciousness for weeks and months after the event. And so we're seeing people like Elon Musk, for example, going to Burning Man, being struck by inspiration, debuting the Tesla Roadster there and getting the idea for the Hyperloop there. Tony Shea, who runs Zappos, is literally reorganizing his entire company um, so that kind of Burning Man style holacracy can be put into the corporate world. And we're seeing this over and over and over and over again. And the examples we drill down into in the rest of the chapter are places where you would, you know, you wouldn't really expect it. It's one thing to say, okay, yeah, people from Silicon Valley, they're going to Burning Man, they're getting inspired, they're coming back. But what we document is Burning Man principles and that kind of heightened inspiration that comes from attending the festival, making inroads into things like intelligence gathering, disaster relief, 
um, at a really big, deep level. So it's not just a, a Silicon Valley innovation trend. As you pointed out, it's now going into the security agencies, a lot of other agencies. We're seeing a lot of government presence at the event, um, and we're seeing it kind of really bleed into all aspects of culture at this point. Right. I thought the, the, the section about how the military is really interested in how Bernie Man is organized because it's, it's all bottom up and uh, the military is you know, trying to shift towards that direction, more bottom up to so this command and control idea where yeah, it's, I mean, they're, this, they, they're putting people into group flow. And what's great about that is one of the things that happens when all those neurochemicals that show up do a lot of things, as I've mentioned, but they're also social bonding chemicals. So they amplify trust between people and collaboration, cooperation and things along those lines. So when you get a bunch of people in group flow inspired that way, they function as, a, as like a seamless team, right? Team performance just goes through the roof. And that's what they saw. Burners Without Borders, which was a disaster response team that was organized during Katrina, has now worked everywhere around the world, every disaster you can think of. But they were significantly faster and more productive than FEMA. Right, they they were getting job after job after job after done while Finland was getting bogged down and bogged down, and that you know caught a lot of people's attention, including the UN. Right, they went, "What the heck is going on? How are you doing this? Teach us." Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so, Stephen, as I was reading the book, I was thinking like, this all sounds really cool, um, but at the same time, I was like, you know, it's kind of creepy too. I, I feel like this could easily be abused by corporations, by governments, right? You have these things you can stick on your head and change people's thoughts, drugs. I mean, it, it sounded like, and you talk about this in the book, it sounds like Brave New World, uh, the novel. Um, so, I mean, can't these ecstasis technologies to create a Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And thank you for bringing it up because I don't want this all to feel like sunshine and rainbows because it's really not. This stuff brings a massive amount of responsibility. And there's three pitfalls. The most obvious one is hedonism, right? These are sticky states produced by very, very, very addictive neurochemistry, really powerful feel-good neurochemistry. And that doesn't mean matter like come walking in, you know, psychedelics have been proven time and time again not to be addictive, but it's still, they're compelling in a deep way. Flow states are compelling in a deep way. How many, you know, athletes do I know growing up who just like lost their life to a ski town or a surf town and, you know, spent a decade as a surf bum or a ski bum chasing flow states, right? You, these are sticky states. They require a lot of responsibility um, to play with them. And, um, and, and you, you can't, this isn't just self-help, right? This isn't five to 10% happier. Um, it's huge boost, 400% heightened creativity, 500% heightened productivity, huge boosts, but you know, if, if the book was going to be about the self-help movement, we would have called it borrowing a nightlight, not stealing fire, right? There's consequences involved here. You have to be an adult about this stuff. The other issues that you brought up are probably just as sticky. Um, we cover militarization, and the military has been interested in ways to trigger non-ordinary states of consciousness since literally we tell the story of John Lilly's inventing of the world's first pleasure probe. It's a brain implant that stimulates our, our kind of orgasm machinery. And the minute he invents the thing, um, and he's at the University of Pennsylvania, every, every government three-letter agency you can imagine is at his door. 
And Lily doesn't want to give it to him. He says, look, you in the wrong hands, this can control a person. You could, you know, what like, we can't do, it. we're going to open source it. But his boss says, you got to give him a presentation anyways. So he does. A couple months after that, he get another guy from the presentation contacts him and says, hey, we'd like to come photograph your, your research with dolphins. And he again insists that it's got to be open sourced and nothing can be classified. And two years later, John Lilly's flipping through Harper's magazine and he sees literally a photo of a man who came to his lab standing next to what they call a nuclear donkey. And they have literally taken a donkey, put his brain implant in the donkey's brain, put a nuclear suitcase on its back and can steer it into enemy territory through pleasure and pain. So the very first time we invent one of these technologies, the military, the Sandia Corporation co-ops it. And from that point on, like the stories are, they're absurd on one level, they're tinfoil hat on another, and they're downright frightening on, a, on another level because we, I mean, there's a 50 year, very visible track record been written about, you know, a lot of places and, you know, packed into the X-Files so we don't take it seriously, but there's a 50 year track record of, of people trying to militarize these technologies. That's a dangerous dangerous trend. We talk about the kind of importance of cognitive literacy, understand what's going on in your brain, how it works, how you can use it, and cognitive liberty, right? Don't let other people rent space in your head if you can avoid it. And the, the bigger issue, on the, I think, on the cognitive liberty front, I think the military is, is problematic, um, but marketing is even more problematic. We're seeing an overall trend. You, these states, you know, I always tell people, don't go shopping in a flow state. You've got heightened pattern recognition. Everything looks good. You're going to come home with a bunch of shit you did not want, right? The same thing is really true. You take some of the most meaningful, potent states of earth and associate them with brands and you have a very powerful link. And Advertisers and marketers are already, you know, working to exploit this length. The whole field of neuromarketing, which was you sort of like popped into consciousness back in the late 90s, early thousands, and, you know, was sort of a little bit not taken seriously because it was early days. Um, now the technology is getting really good and it's no longer early days. And, you know, those, those are issues. They're all very, very real. And with the forces accelerating and the fact that, you know, this is already a $4 trillion underground market, the opportunity for entrepreneurs is everywhere. Fantastic. But also, you know, double-edged sword a little bit. Well, Stephen, there's a lot more we could talk about, uh, but where can people learn more about your book and your, your work? Perfect question. Stealingfirebook.com is everything you need about Stealing Fire. Uh, if you want more about me, stephencotler.com, S-T-E-V-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R. And if you want to know more about flow hacking, it's the flowgenomeproject.com. And if you go to the Flow Genome Project site, by the way, there's a free flow profile. Anybody can take it. Um, it's a tritology. It says if you're this kind of person, you're going to find flow in these directions. Um, so it's a really good place to start if you're interested in this stuff and, and want to move forward. Fantastic. Stephen Kotler, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Stephen Kotler. He's the author of the book, Stealing Fire. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find more information about the book at stealingfirebook.com. And also more about Stephen's work with the Flow Genome Project and his other writing at stephencotler.com. Also make sure to check out our show notes at aom.is slash stealingfire, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is recorded on clearcast.io. If you're a podcaster and do remote podcast recordings, it's a service that I've developed with my brother-in-law to make improve the sound quality on it. You can check it out at clearcast.io. Thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.